Good morning. Uh, I would like to uh, extend the greetings of uh, the Fellowship Church at Middlebrook Pike, where I'm a staff member over there. I'm on staff at uh, Fellowship Church as the uh, associate lead pastor and also director of counseling. And one of my uh, duties or responsibilities is to supervise Michael Thomas and Steve Van Horn. So you can sympathize with me in terms of my job. But uh, it's always uh, fun to visit you over here. And of course, I, I stay on top of what's happening. And I'd just like to thank you for all that you're doing here. I know that uh, any given Sunday morning, any given week, it's not possible for our Fellowship North Church here to function without many, many of you just uh, selfishly investing your lives and sacrificing and investing. And uh, all the fruit that we're seeing, all the fruit that God is granting, has a lot to do with your faithfulness. So thank you so much. You're a testimony of encouragement to all of us. Uh, this morning, uh, I'm going to be starting a two-week series. I'm with you this morning. I'm with you next week. I'm speaking on a topic about what is your mission? What is your mission uh, for life? You know, everyone has a life mission, and uh, finding that mission is very central to fulfilling what it is that God wants to do with your life. So we're going to be talking about finding your life mission. Now, you know, if you got to know me uh, personally, you'd find out I'm just an ordinary guy, and I just do ordinary things. And just like you, I often make mistakes and put my, put, put my, put my foot in my mouth and uh, forget stuff. Uh, not too long ago, I was a guest speaker at a church. It was in a town in another state, and I traveled over there and uh, got there plenty early and arrived at the church and went in and kind of introduced myself to some of the people that were there, and it was obvious the pastor was away, and uh, met some of the deacons and elders and went out, asked them when it was that the uh, sermon usually uh, was offered during the service, and they told me right after the third hymn. So I went and sat on the front row and just waited service started, and it's a great time of worship. After the third hymn, I got up to go up and speak, but so did someone else. And we met right here, and it was at that moment I realized I was in the wrong church. <laughs> Instead of Grace Church, I was supposed to be at Grace Community Church, uh, which had already started their service. They were wondering where their speaker was. So, see, I'm just like you. I make mistakes. I screw up. I remember when I was in college... Um, my girlfriend needed a prescription. She was sick and in the dormitory, and she asked me to go pick a prescription up for her at the drugstore. So I drove over there, and she left a note that I had permission to pick up her prescription. So I got over there, and the pharmacist was showing me the prescription. It was these rather large pills, I mean, huge capsules. And uh, as he showed them to me and started to give me some instruction, I said, hold a second. My girlfriend can hardly even swallow an aspirin tablet. There's no way she's going to be able to swallow these huge caplets. And he said, well, sir, these are suppositories. I said, I don't care what you call them. She's not going to be able to swallow them. <laughs> and that's the first time I found out what a suppository was. So I'm just an ordinary guy. Screw up in ordinary ways just like you. But, you know, if you got to know me also, you'd find out that I have an extraordinary mission for my life, because it's been given to me by an extraordinary God. And, you know, if I got a chance to know you personally, I'd probably find out that you're just an ordinary person like me, but I also find out that you have 
an extraordinary mission just like I do. You know, I find that an awful lot of people don't even, haven't spent any time thinking about it. They don't realize what their mission is for life. And because they're not intentional and conscious about it, they often miss out on great opportunities to pursue their mission. So we'd like to talk about that. And I'd like to get started by just pointing out to you that Christ had a mission. And let's see if we have that up here. Yeah, what is Christ's mission? And notice there's five different times in every gospel Jesus Christ tells us what his mission is for life. And you know, if you read each of those statements, they're all very similar, they all have different emphases, but the common denominator is all, every one of his statements here about what his mission is goes back to people. It's about people. It's about people that are lost, people that are broken, people that are in trouble, and his mission is about coming to them and helping them exchange the life that they're living apart from him for a new life in him. That's what it means to redeem people. Christ's message, his, his mission was redemptive by nature. And you know, uh, in order to uh, fulfill what we uh, exist for as a church, we also have a mission. In a real sense, the, the, any church is the body of Christ in that local community. In fact, the Bible uses this analogy or this metaphor to describe what a church is. It calls it the body of Christ. And the body of Christ has a certain responsibility to carry out the mission of Christ in their community. And you might think about it, the fact that our job as Christ's body is to represent and communicate Christ to our communities. You know, I heard about one church one time over in Europe that uh, after there was a bombing in the city, uh, the statue in front of their church, the statue of Jesus, was damaged. And it, their ha- the hands of Jesus, was the, this, the statue was toppled over by a blast, and the hands of Jesus broke off. And so as they had a chance to kind of um, uh, 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 put things back in order and, and try to get their church back in order, they, they, they were able to re-erect the statue, and they debated about what to do about the hands being broken off. And they finally decided they wouldn't put the hands back on, Instead, they would write beneath it that Christ has no hands but ours. In a real way, that's what it means to be the body of Christ. We are his arms, we are his hands, we are his feet in our community. And you know, uh, that's why, by the way, uh, every one of our church campuses at at Fellowship all have a mission statement. And uh, here at Fellowship North, your mission statement is the same mission statement we have at Fellowship Middlebrook, and that is to glorify God by pursuing the Christ life and engaging the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's how we've decided to, um, to personally fulfill the mission of Christ in the church in our local communities. And you notice it's so important that when you have a mission statement, you're able to put it, just like Jesus Christ put his, you're able to put it in one succinct, memorable sentence to remember. So the, the mission of the church, Fellowship North, is to glorify God by pursuing the Christ life and engaging the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you can remember what it is, then you can use it to make decisions. And we often do use it to make decisions here at Fellowship North about, you know, what is our services going to be like? Uh, what kind of disciple-making ministries are we going to offer? How are we going to spend the money that God gives to us through all of you, through your generosity? Uh, What are we going to say yes to? What are we going to say no to? It comes back down to what our mission is. But then how we fulfill it 
has a lot to do with each one of you and what you're doing to fulfill your mission because this should beg the question or get you asking the question, what about me? What is my individual mission? Does my life even matter? What is my part? What difference can I really make in my community? You know, an um, awful lot of time people doubt whether they have any value, whether they matter at all, and if they were to disappear off the face of the earth, would anyone really miss them? And you know, that's a shame because it's so different than what the truth really is in Jesus Christ. You know, for a while I served as a chaplain for the Federal Bureau of Prisons. And I was stationed in uh, Los Angeles on what's called Terminal Island. It's a little island that's out in the middle of uh, Los Angeles Harbor. It has oil terminals on there. It's not called Terminal Island because we terminate anyone out there. Uh, and it's a federal prison, and it's a World War II Navy brig that was made for 300 um, uh, prisoners of, of war during World War II. But uh, today, it houses over 1,400 inmates that are bank robbers and murderers and drug addicts. And that's where I was assigned to go and be the Protestant chaplain. And one of the things about being there at Terminal Island was it was the place where anybody that was real sick in the federal system, there was a federal inmate or convict, if they were uh, uh, especially terminal in terms of uh, very serious illness, they would come to our hospital at Terminal Island and that's where they would spend their last days until they were just about on death's door, and then they would be moved to a local hospital. And while they're in our, our prison hospital, they're not allowed to have any visitors. Family can't come in there, and so there was often men in there dying of cancer and AIDS and other kind of diseases, and the only person that could visit them was the chaplain. So I was often with these men, and one man in particular was, who was dying of a terrible disease I remember this, uh, this, this, this uh, look of regret in his eyes. Several times he said to me, he says, Chaplain, I can't die because I haven't done anything yet. I haven't done anything yet. And he kept repeating that, I haven't done anything yet. Well, you know, if you look at his, his jacket, his criminal jacket, you know, he's done a lot of things. But what he really meant when he says, I haven't done anything, was that he hadn't really accomplished anything with his life that felt meaningful to him. And you know, every one of us, if we got to the end of our lives and we looked back and felt as he did, would have the same kind of regret if we didn't do anything. And you know, the thing is, is that God has made sure that none of us ever have to get to the end of our, end of our lives and regret that we haven't done anything because he's given each one of us a mission. In fact, the scriptures attest to this. The scriptures teach us that everyone has been created for a reason, for a higher purpose that makes their lives matter. You know, uh, even when the first man and woman were created, it says the Lord formed the man, and he put him in the garden, and he put him in the garden to fulfill a specific mission, the first man and woman were not put in the Garden of Eden for an extended vacation, but they were put there to work. They were given a mission to accomplish. We're also told that um, the Apostle Paul, he's writing there in the book of Galatians, Galatians chapter 1, verse 15. He says, God set me apart from birth and called me by his grace that I might, and he goes on, and in one succinct sentence, he describes what his mission was. 
what it was that he was set apart from birth to do. He goes on and writes in Ephesians 2.10, speaking of all of us, he says, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So every one of us has been created to do some good works that God has already prepared for us to do. And it's up to us to discover what that mission is and then spend our lives, our resources, fulfilling it. God has created, equipped, and positioned each of us to do something on this earth that no one else can do. The scriptures testify to that. Tells us that every one of us has a unique purpose to fulfill on this earth. That's why Paul could say at the end of his life, let me just read his words here in 2 Timothy. He says, The time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I've kept the faith. I have finished my mission, is what he's saying as he's come to the end of his life. You know, coming to the end of our lives and saying that I've accomplished my mission depends a whole lot on whether we've been able to identify what that mission is and intentionally pursue it. You know, we'll never even really fully come to appreciate who we are until we understand why we are. I mean, we'll never really come to the place of understanding why God made us this way, with this body, with these particular abilities or talents, and put us in the family of origin that he put us in and caused us perhaps to to live in the town that we grew up in and had the experiences we did in childhood and adolescence and young adulthood, we'll never fully appreciate why it is that we have the past that we have and the constitution that we have and the place that we have geographically until we come to understand what God's mission is for us in particular. Then you'll find out that you have the exact body. You have the exact family of origin. You have the exact past that you need in order to be fully prepared to accomplish your mission in life. It's such a critical thing to understand. You know, uh, it's interesting in the mental health field, uh, they have uh, began to study uh, people that are psychologically healthy to try to understand psychology a little bit more. In the past, uh, so many textbooks on psychopathology and treating people with psychological disorders was based on studying people that were psychologically unhealthy, and there's a new trend to say, let's look at psychological health and, dis- and try to decide from that how to help people get over their psychological problems. And one thing they've been looking at is suicide and suicide prevention. And so they began to study everyone that had suicidal intent or what they call suicidal ideas that did not finish it. They were not suicide completers. Somehow, in the midst of feeling suicidal, they didn't carry it out and they were not successful. And so they began to study these folks and realized that they all had one common denominator, people that are able to resist the impulse, the despair, the, uh, the sadness that comes with depression that often leads to suicide. The people that were able to resist that were people that had a sense of purpose for their life. If they had a sense of purpose or mission, they were even able, in the darkest of their days, to be able to keep on going and see their way through them because they had a purpose to keep on going. See, it's our, our God-given mission for our life is what makes each one of our lives matter. 
So the question is, can you state in one succinct sentence what God's individual mission is for your life? And here's a hint. It's something to live for that is bigger than just yourself. Can you put it in one sentence? I have a friend that's a physical therapist, and his life mission statement is this, is to help the weak become strong. And every choice that he's made in terms of college, career, uh, occupation, um, uh, where and how to serve and invest, it, invest his time has to do with that mission. I know I have a friend that's an architect, and his mission is to create places where families thrive. I know he's worked for four or five different firms. He has taken the, every position to find the place where he can most effectively carry out God's mission for his life. I have another friend that's a life coach, and her mission is to help people discover and unleash the inner leader within. She believes from studying the scriptures that God wants every one of us to be a leader that most people, though, don't lead. And so her life coaching is devoted to helping people discover and unleash the leader within them. That's what she feels like God has uniquely equipped and positioned her to do that no one else can quite do like her. Uh, I also know someone that's a homemaker, uh, unable to have biological children of her own, and so her life mission is to become a spiritual mother to spiritual orphans, and it's incredible how God has used her as she's pursued that particular life mission. I have a friend that's a linguist, and he's given his life to pursue the mission to make God's word accessible and understandable to people who don't have God's word. And wow, has God been able to use him. But boy, he knew that early on, and so it, it, it affected all the decisions he made about uh, college and graduate school and where he would go after college and what he would do because his life mission directed him in making those choices. And I also know a photo artist, and her, um, her mission that she uses her photo art to accomplish is to draw people to God through the beauty of his creation. And her goal is to capture it in photos and draw people's eyes to the beauty that's in God through her photo art. So no matter what it is that, that, uh, that we might do for a living, it, it can become a means to pursuing God's mission in our lives. And so it's so important that we start to get a feel for what that is and we can put it in one succinct sentence. And I want you to think about that and that's why I've made copies of all these slides, and they're on the table in back of the worship center here. And if you would like a copy of all these slides, you can pick one up back there, because I'd like you to be thinking about this, especially between now and next week, when we talk some more about what's it look like once you're on mission for God, what can you expect? You might ask the question, why does God give each of us a mission for our life? Why does he give us each one? You know, we read this, the words of Jesus in John 15, I think, answer that question. He says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. See, it's God's desire that each of us have a lasting footprint. We leave a lasting footprint on his world. In order to do that, he gives us each a mission. And as we pursue that mission, it has eternal consequences. It leaves an eternal impact. 
one of the shows on TV that Vicky, my wife, and I like to watch is this show that's called Strange Inheritance. And it talks about people who have, you know, their family members die and leave them strange things in their will. And uh, we watch one story where this uh, man had collected, I don't know, 100, 200, maybe, maybe even more than that, John Deere tractors. And he had filled huge um, pole barns, metal pole barns, full of these uh, tractors that were vintage. Went all the way back from the beginning. And there were just hundreds and hundreds of them, all collector's items, and were worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. And uh, when he died, he left this to his children. And I don't know, he might have been thinking that this was going to be a, uh, a great uh, a legacy of his life and that uh, this would be something that would uh, cause people to remember him for a long, long time. But for his kids, it became a, a total burden of how to maintain these things because they had to be com uh, constantly worked on and maintained. And it was a very expensive kind of thing. And finally, they decided they could only keep a few and had to sell the rest of it off. So within a Within even a decade of him dying, already his tractor collection was being dispersed. But so you know, it's amazing, as they interviewed his, his children, and they were talking about him, they weren't talking about, wow, you know, I, I love my dad because he's the greatest collector of tractors. What they were talking about was, was the example that he set by being such a faithful, hardworking man, and the kind of man he was in the community and that he was a man of faith, and he was, he, people could always depend on him, his commitment. You see, sometimes we think that the lasting impact we're going to leave on the world is going to be through how much stuff we can acquire, or what kind of uh, material, tangible um, <clears throat> uh, monument to ourselves that we can leave, with in reality, the real impact we're making has more to do with who we are and what we're doing for others in our lives. So God created us so that every one of our lives would matter and we'd have fruit that would last. You know, but not everyone thinks about their lives mattering the same way the Bible does. Uh, you know, there are different kinds of philosophies today. Here are the three most popular I have on the screen, and they all have a different way of answering the question, does my life matter? Does it have a higher meaning or purpose? You know, the New Age theology, the Eastern religions theology says, yes, everyone has a mission that is a higher purpose for their life, but it's unknowable and it's irresistible. And so, for all practical purposes, you don't even have to worry about it because there's going to be some forces of karma kind of guiding you to fulfill your mission, and even if you want to resist it, you couldn't. And then there's a nihilistic view, which says, no, people really don't have any higher purpose for their lives other than just partying today, knowing that tomorrow they'll die. Just live for the moment. Live for pleasure, because there's no higher purpose to your life. That's a very popular philosophy today. And then there's this third one, the postmodern humanistic view, sometimes called the constructionist view. And it says, well, it's up to you to decide whether your life has a higher purpose or not and what it is, you get to decide. Now, it's interesting that there's just one verse in the book of James that debunks all of those rival philosophies. They tell us that, uh, that these particular views are false. The verse is this in James 4.17, and it says, 
Anyone then, anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it sins. It's, it says anyone who knows, which means our life mission, what we're supposed to do is knowable, and that refutes, of course, the New Age and Eastern view. And then it says if anyone knows the good, meaning that our life mission is real and it's particular. There is a particular good that every one of us is called to fulfill. And that refutes nihilism that says there's no higher purpose for living. And it says if you know the good that you ought to do, which means that it's not an option, it's not something you decide on your own, but your life mission is given to you. That refutes the humanistic view. And if you know the good you ought to do and you don't do it, you sin, it means you can resist it. It's resistible. God's not going to make you fulfill a mission that you don't want to fulfill, but it's an opportunity for you to fulfill if you want to. So the biblical view is one that's, that's, that's very different, and not very many people actually in our culture, they subscribe to the fact. They don't realize that God does have a particular mission for their lives. Why is it important to know what our individual life mission is? Why is that even important? Well, there's four reasons I want to just quickly walk through with you today. And basically, as a counselor myself, as someone that works with a lot of people, what I find is that the most difficult people to work with, the most difficult people to help find peace and joy and the fullness that God wants for them in their lives are the people that have no sense of higher purpose for their lives. They have no big idea for which they are pursuing in their life. And so first, we know that it's important to know, to have some understanding of what your life mission is, because it's necessary in order to recognize and seize the opportunities that God gives us to partner with him in what he's doing in the world. And I want you to notice there, and Paul says, speaking of himself and some of his Christian colleagues of the day, he says, what after all is Apollos? And what is Paul? Who are they? They're only servants as the Lord assigned each his task. See, each of us have been assigned a task. That's our mission. For, for we are God's fellow workers. Each one should be careful how he builds. Now, so whatever your life mission is, it, it has something to do with building something for God. It's, it has something to do with joining him as a fellow worker and building something for him. It may mean building a company. It could mean building a practice. Uh, maybe a point of light in this dark world. Or maybe building a source of wisdom or a place of enrichment and uh, restoration for people. It could mean building an organization for God. It could mean building a partnership or a group, a mother's club. It could be building a particular service that you're going to provide for other people. Or it could be building leaders. Or it might even be building a network of relationships. Whatever it is, it's something that you're partnering with God in building for his glory. So it's important to know what your life mission is because how can you do it intentionally? You know, how can you do it with God? Can you imagine uh, starting out with someone to build something and you guys are, really have two different set of blueprints? You're going to build a house, and, and one of you has a blueprint for a, for a rancher, and the other has a blueprint for a two-story colonial. And so you end up at some point not being able to work together because your blueprints are so different. What is it that God wants to build through you? It's so important to know 
what it is that you're called to do that no one can quite do like you. That's your life mission. Here's a second reason why it's important. It's important to know what our life mission is because it provides us with purpose for our lives, biblical self-esteem, this thing called grit or perseverance, joy. All of these are protection against many of the psychological ills prevalent in our culture today. You might think of it as a psychological armor that we wear in a hostile environment. Um, You know, you'll never feel more alive. You'll never feel more alive than when you're pursuing the mission that God created for you. And you'll, you'll never quite realize how valuable you are, how valuable you are to God. You'll never have really a biblical sense of self-esteem until you understand what it is you've been equipped to accomplish him for, and that is your li- life mission. You know, look at what Paul says here in Philippians 4. He says, I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do, now here's the secret. He says, I've learned the secret, and then he's going to go ahead and tell us what it is. Here it is. I have it in bold print here. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Now, what did Paul mean when he says, the reason why I can be in content in all things is because no matter what happens to me, no matter even if I'm locked up in a Roman prison, like he was when he wrote these words, even though when I'm locked up, I can still... uh, Uh, be content, the reason is, is I've come to the realization that I can do everything that I was created to do. I can do everything that I was meant to do through Christ Jesus who gives me strength. No one can block me from my mission. No circumstance can block me from my mission. No person, no, no weakness, no illness on my own. Whatever comes into my life, I can still accomplish my mission, and that then gives me the psychological armor to withstand anything because I can still accomplish my mission. You know, there's a, there was a psychiatrist that went through the Holocaust, and he survived two or three of the Nazi concentration camps and came out of that to write a book called Man's Search for Meaning. He was a Jewish psychiatrist. His name was Viktor Frankl. And what Frankl observes in his book, Man's Search for Meaning, is this, is that uh, the, the, the thing that, the number one thing that uh, stood out as the <clears throat> strength of those who were able to survive the Holocaust was that they had a purpose to live, they had a purpose to survive. Those that had a higher purpose to stay alive were the ones that stood the best chance of surviving those awful circumstances. And for Viktor Frankl, it was that he wrote a book in his mind. He had no paper, no pencils. He had nothing he could call his own except his own body and mind. And so what the Germans could not control, the Nazis couldn't control, was what was going on inside his mind. And so he decided to write his book in his mind, and he knew the book which told what had happened in those camps and all the truths that he had learned It would never be published if he didn't stay alive because it was written in his mind. It was his mission that kept him alive. His mission was to bring this truth to the world. And so people that have a sense of mission have a psychological armor to withstand things that other people can't withstand. It's what gives you strength. Here's a third reason why it's important to know what our mission is. 
And that is, without knowing our life mission, we can't make wise choices. Choices about our career, our places of employment, our school, our academic programs, our life partner, our priorities, our where and how we serve and invest our resources. All of these can be made so much more wisely if we have a sense of what our mission is. Some of the worst decisions people ever make are decisions they make in full ignorance of what their mission is. In fact, you know, I, I counsel young adults, don't ever pick a life partner until you know what your life mission is and what your partner's life mission is and make sure they're compatible. Otherwise, you're going to end up married to someone who has a mission that's very incompatible of yours. They're not supportive of yours. You're not supportive of theirs. And that's going to be a hard marriage. That's going to be a tough marriage. So life mission enables us as you become aware of it, to make wise choices. Should I take this job or not? I don't know. Should I take it? I don't know. I feel pretty good about where I'm working now, but, boy, I can make $10,000 more a year over here. Should I take it? See, all those decisions should be uh, based on your life mission and say, well, where, which, which job, which place of employment, which company will give me the best opportunity to fulfill what I was created to fulfill to accomplish my mission? Will it be working for this company or this company? Will it be working in this place or this place? See, those ought to be based not on income, but on mission. In fact, here's what the words of Jesus around this subject. He says here in Matthew 6, he says, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, about your body, what you'll wear. Is not your life more important than food and clothes? See, the pagans run after all these things, and, you know, God knows you need them, but he doesn't want you to run after them. Instead, he wants you to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and know then that all these things that you'll need will be provided to you. All you have to worry about is pursuing the mission that God has given you, and he'll provide the rest. That's the basis on which he wants, you to, wants us to make our decisions. And here's the fourth reason why it's important that we know what our individual life mission is. It's because our life mission gives us meaning and purpose to everything we do. It provides the organizing principle for our lives, for our occupation, for our limitations, our adversities, the places we serve in our family, what we're good at, what we're not good at. It helps us know, you know, what it is that we're supposed to do with our lives. It becomes the organizing principle. You know, uh, the great thing about our mission, it helps you answer the two kinds of questions that all of us ask, the why questions and the what questions. The why questions go like this. Why did God make me like this? Why did God put me in a family like I grew up in? Why did God give me these limitations? Why did God um, put me here in this town? Why do I have to struggle with this particular challenge? Those are the why questions. Our life mission will answer all those questions because whatever is happening to you, it's what's best for accomplishing your mission. The what questions are then, what am I supposed to do with, um, with this personality, with this body? What am I supposed to do with this set of gifts? What am I supposed to do with this education? What? So your life mission answers the what questions as well as the why questions. So that, that leads us to, to asking this question, how can we know what our individual life mission is? How can we know? 
Well, it's interesting that the Bible doesn't explicitly say. It doesn't say uh, it because it assumes that God will make it known to us if we want to know it. If we really want to know what it is that he's called us to do and equipped us to do that nobody else can quite do like us, then he'll, he'll make it known if we want to know it. It also assumes that knowledge of our mission comes as a byproduct of all the new ways our hearts naturally move in Christ. Look at what the prophet Isaiah said would happen when Jesus Christ comes and people begin to receive him as their Lord. It says that, that he will give us a new heart and he's going to put a spirit in us that moves us to follow his ways. And it's interesting, as, as we give our hearts over to Christ and we allow his Holy Spirit to begin to come into our life and make this new heart in us, what it allows us to do then is to begin to naturally move in these new ways. Our hearts and lives move in new ways, and as we move in these new ways, we discover what it is that our mission is. Now, what do we mean by these ways? Well, let me give you an example of a few of them. Once your heart is being kind of made over by Christ, once he's forming this new heart in you, one of the things you'll find yourself doing is pursuing the greatest prize. Our new hearts move us to pursue the greatest prize of all. Notice uh, Paul says this, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For, though, for whose sake I have lost all things, I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. I want to press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me. Now, it's interesting that the word here, great, means valuable, the most valuable. And when your heart begins to be taken over by Christ and reformed, one of the things it does is it pursues the greatest prize. And the most valuable prize of all is knowing Christ. It's knowing Christ. It's having a personal relationship with him. It's moving toward him. And as we start to pursue a relationship with him, it's interesting how clear it becomes what our mission really is. Here's another way that our hearts naturally move. It moves toward obeying the greatest commandments. You know, Jesus has asked, what is the greatest commandment of all? And he says, the greatest is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your strength, and your soul, and to love others as yourself. You notice that uh, the greatest commandments always have to do with our relationship with others. And the word great here means the most important. The most important commandment of all is to love God and love others. And you know, as we do that, we fulfill all the other commandments of God. This is the way our hearts naturally move in Christ. And it doesn't feel like it's something that we have to force ourselves to do. Our hearts begin to want to obey the greatest commandment. Another new way our hearts move is to fulfill the greatest roles. You know, um, <clears throat> two of D Jesus' disciples came to him and said, hey, listen, we want to be great in your kingdom. Uh, when you come into your kingdom, Jesus, can we sit at your right hand and your left hand? And there's something about that question that didn't sit right with Jesus. It reflected something wrong in their heart. And so he said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. 
Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be servant of all. See, it's interesting that when Christ begins to get a hold of our hearts and reform it and reshape it, one of the things we do is we look for the greatest roles to fill, and the greatest roles to fill are the roles in which we have the greatest opportunity to serve in his name, to serve others. There's an other-centeredness that begins that we begin to become eager to pursue. We serve the greatest roles. So our hearts naturally pursue the greatest prize, relationship with Christ, naturally obey the greatest commandments, which is to love God and others, naturally seek out the greatest roles of serving, and that can be done no matter what our occupation is. We can still see that as a way of serving him and others through them. And also another way our hearts move is to employ our greatest gifts, Paul, one of Jesus' disciples, is writing here, and he says that God has combined the members of the body and has given the greater honor to the parts that lacked, so that there should be no division in the body, but that that its parts should have equal concern for each other. And now you're the body of Christ, and each of you as part of it. Eagerly desire the greater gifts. Since you're eager to have spiritual gifts, try to excel in the gifts that build up the church. So it talks about the greater gifts here, and here it means the most powerful gifts. Peter goes on to describe these as a gifts where you can either speak or serve as a representative of Jesus Christ. And so it's interesting that as Christ begins to form and shape our hearts and they become uh, like his, they become new, these are things we automatically begin to do. Pursue the greatest prize. Obey the greatest commandment. So we start to fill the greatest roles and we start to use the greatest gifts that we have. And guess what? As we do, we're naturally engaged in the mission that God has given us. We're enabled to live a life that matters. We're empowered to leave a lasting impact. And we're employed as partners with God. See, that tends to happen naturally for a person that has a new heart in Christ. That's why, by the way, when King David in the Old Testament realized there's something really, really wrong with his heart, after his sin, sins had been exposed, the fact that he had had an adulterous relationship with a woman that was not his wife, and then conspired to have her husband killed so that he could take her as his wife, all this was exposed in King David's life, and he realized there's something really, really wrong with his heart if he would do this. And he cried out from the depth of his being in one of the psalms that he wrote, that's still in the book of Psalms. He wrote, Create a clean heart in me, O God, and put a faithful spirit deep inside me. He realized how critical it was. was, There's no way he could fulfill his mission as a king of Israel. And there's no way that any one of us can fulfill our mission as a person living here in the 21st century unless we first have a new heart. Because that new heart naturally moves us in ways that engages our life mission, that enables enables us to live a life that matters and empowers us to leave a lasting impact on our world and employs us as a partner with the living God. The new heart naturally moves us in those directions. That's why Jesus at one point said... Come unto me, all you that are weary and heavy laden, 
and I will give you refreshment for your souls. See, he wants every one of us to come to him, and when we come to him, he comes inside us in the form of his Holy Spirit and begins to transform our hearts. One writer described it this way. They said it's, it's kind of like taking an island back from the enemy. In World War II, when we were taking the uh, Pacific back, the Allied forces taking the Pacific back from the Japanese Imperial forces, we would take it one island at a time. And the way the U.S. forces learned to take an island was to establish a beachhead first, sending the Marines in and establishing a beachhead and then finally expanding that beachhead until the whole island was yours. Well, God sort of works that way with the human heart. When we come to him and we ask him to be our Lord and Savior, when we turn our life over to him, his Holy Spirit comes and lives inside us and establishes a beachhead. And it's from that beachhead he begins to move out and take our whole heart and he recreates it. He makes it new so that naturally pursues the great prize of being in relationship with him, of knowing him intimately. The great commandment of loving God and loving others with our whole hearts. The, the, the great roles of serving and in that way being a representative of Christ in our world and the great gifts of speaking and serving his representatives. Our hearts kind of move in that direction naturally. So it brings us back to this question. Can you state in one memorable succinct sentence what God's mission is for your life? Can you identify that? So I want to encourage you to be thinking and praying about that because I think uh, as number one, as, uh, as we begin to uh, turn our hearts over to Christ for him to reshape it. Number two, as we begin to pursue the greatest prize, obey the greatest commandment, fill the greatest roles, employ the greatest gifts, an idea of what your mission starts to form. And you start to write it out and begin to pray to God about it, ask him to confirm it, clarify it, and shape it. You kind of talk it over with some, of the, some godly people around you that kind of understand how God works and they know you pretty well. And you, start to, you start to form in one memorable succinct sentence what your mission is, and then that becomes then your true north. It becomes your compass for making decisions, deciding where and how you'll serve, how you'll use your resources, when you'll say yes and when you'll say no, who you invite to be a partner with you. It becomes a tool, a tool that provides an organizing principle to our lives. So I want you to start to think about what is your part? What is it that God has uniquely created and shaped and equipped and positioned you to do that no one can quite do like you? You know, when I was um, in high school and early college, I wanted my life to matter, just like I'm sure you want your life to matter. And so I started exploring what I was going to do with my life to make my life matter. And I started with, with the things that I did well. And I thought, well, you know, I, I thought, well, what can I do well? I thought, well, I, I swim well. And, uh, you know, I was a, on a water polo team, and I was a diver and a competitive swimmer. And I thought, well, maybe I'll go into aquatics for a living. And so the first college I went to was a YMCA college, and I majored in aquatics. And... Um, and in that year, I just, I, the more I got involved in aquatics, I just felt like something was missing. It wasn't exactly what I was meant to do was to train other people how to scuba dive or swim or dive. 
And so I started thinking about what else I could do well. And I knew that I could write pretty well because I'd written for the school newspapers. And I'd, I'd, I'd written uh, some, some pretty good papers in school. And so I decided to change my major my sophomore year to journalism. And so I got all involved in journalism and English literature and all that stuff because I could write well. But as I was getting into it, I just didn't sense that writing news stories and writing reports on what is happening in the world around us can be a very worthy mission, but it didn't seem like a good fit to me. Because all the time I was trying to find uh, a purpose for my life from what I did well, instead of asking the question, what am I meant to do? What, it is, what is it that God has uniquely called and equipped and positioned me to do? And I began to, to, to look around and kind of talk with some of the godly folks around me, and I began to realize that where I experienced the greatest joy and, and had the greatest impact was when I was discipling others and when I was helping other people develop as leaders. And so right there in the middle of college, what I became aware of, what began to form for me, and I was able to put in one memorable, succinct sentence, was the fact that really my life mission had to do with, cha with training the next generation of leaders for the church, for the body of Christ. And you know, uh, once I made that decision, all other decisions became a lot more clear. And since then, I probably have served in 10 or 12 different places. Some of them have been ministries, and some of them have been secular places. And uh, I've done a lot of different things, from being a marriage and family therapist, to being a prison chaplain, a college chaplain, to uh, uh, being a college professor and a pastor, a youth pastor. But the one thing that hasn't changed, the one constant denominator through my whole life has been my mission, is to train leaders. I do a lot of things at Fellowship Church I, at, at the Middlebrook campus. I fill a lot of role, fulfill a lot of roles, but you boil it all down. It's all about developing leaders because that's my life mission is to develop leaders. What's yours? What's your life mission? That's, that's the curiosity I want to pique this morning for you. That's what I want to send you away thinking about this morning. And as you do... Uh, pick up a set of these notes, these slides, if you want. They're on the table back there. Next week, when you come back, we're going to look at a case study in the scriptures of a man who found out his mission, he got on mission, and what he experienced, because I think what he experienced is really a, um, a pattern of what every one of us will experience as we get on mission for God. Will you join me in prayer? Lord, thanks so much for your goodness to us. Thank you, Lord, for... Um, creating each one of us and giving us a mission for our lives. Thank you, Lord, for um, giving us the exact past, the exact parents, the exact body and uh, personalities, Lord, that you want. And thank you, Lord, for giving each of us a higher purpose. And I pray, Father, you use this uh, lesson this morning, use this study, help each one of us, Lord, clarify just a little bit more what it is that you've called us to do. Lord, help us know what our part is in building your kingdom. We want to be part of that. We pray for your wisdom and help. In Christ's name, amen.